one through four. And I have to tell you that those precede one of my favorite verses in the Bible, which I find, verse five is this, this wonderful promise that I end up claiming all the time. But we're, we're going to read the, a little introduction to that. Philippians chapter two, verses one through four. This is the new international version. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only on your own interests, but also on the interests of others. We ask the Lord's blessing on the reading of his word. And many of you, I'm sure, already know Pastor Bob Cundiff. He's our conference president. And I found out this morning that he's really one of us. Is that right? Yes. Yes. When the, when the Pathfinders were going to come up here and do a, a uh, program regarding hymns, Kaylin said, oh, Mom, you need the, everybody needs to sing with them as they're singing the songs. And I said, no problem. Even during the, the offertory, half the people on the, on the platform are singing along with it. We'll sing with them, no problem. I heard him singing with the offertory, so I felt perfectly fine and didn't have to be on good behavior, and I could sing too. <laughs> we are so glad you're one of us. His foot was tapping too. Oh, I'm going to get you some more. Good morning. It is a joy to be with you this morning. You know, this is one of the uh, very first churches that I preached in when I moved to northern New England five years ago. And um, I think it was like number two or number three. It was right away. Um, Pastor Cliff got me on the schedule, and I got to come to Laconia. And after five years of serving in this conference as president, I am still not used to be being introduced as president. And I still, when they say Bob kind of president, I look around I'm like, "Wait, well, president? Oh wait, that's me." It just every time it it just kind of gets me. I'm a pastor at heart. I really am. I had a little, I had a little anxiety moment when I got here this morning. I looked in your bulletin. Because if you look at the worship page and look down on the bottom right-hand side of the worship page, what it says there is, Bob Cundiff, pianist. <laughs> and I got to tell you, worship was not going to be very good if you were going to make me play the piano today. It was going to be sad, very sad. Hopefully, I'm a better preacher than a piano player. <laughs> All right. You know, in the vocabulary of the world, the word down is a word that is reserved for losers. It's a word to be avoided and shunned like the plague. Thank you. A word that's not really discussed, especially in, in polite society. It's a word that seems to color whatever it touches. Think of this. Down and out. Downfall, downscale, downhearted. It's a word that seems to be found only on the lips of the unfortunate, weak, or poor, or cowardly. 
And if all that weren't enough, there's this crowning blow to the word. It's antonym is up. And up in our high-voltage society is a word that has come to be cherished and treasured, almost worshipped, a word that's reserved for the winners and the heroes and for those who most know what they want out of life, a word to be pursued and admired. It's the unspoken talk of the party, the way to influence whoever is present. Upscale, or he's up and coming, or she's upwardly mobile. Well, that family there, upper class, it's the word of the chosen few and the strong. After all, we rise against gravity or the odds or the crowd or whatever else happens to get in our way. You ascend to money, fame, power, spotlight, riches, comfort, pleasure. It is clearly the direction of greatness. At least that's what the world says. That's the rules that we live under if you play by the rules of the world. And in such a world, Philippians chapter 2 may be the most counter-cultural chapter in all of the Bible. Because simply stated, the message of Philippians 2 is this. If you want to be great, if you want to be truly great, then the direction you must go is down. The message of Philippians 2 is that you descend into greatness. And at the heart of this paradox is still another paradox. Greatness is not a measure of self-will, but of self-abandonment. The more you lose, the more you gain. And on the surface, one can understand the world's reservations. Descending into greatness, that sounds absurd. An oxymoron, if ever there was there one. In fact, the book of Philippians makes it clear that descending is everything the world cracks it up to be. It is demotion, anonymity, humility, servanthood, losing, downscaling, decreasing, and in the end, even dying. The best of Manhattan's advertising agencies would be hard-pressed to package this concept into a catchy jingle. Lose it all. Imagine the possibilities. But the world is not alone in its unwillingness to buy into this idea of descending. Throughout history, I believe that few Christians have really come to grips with the concept of downward mobility. Today, many Christians confuse their faith with a wish list for selfish desires instead of renunciation of self-indulgence that the Bible talks about. How many people do you know who have recently downscaled or decreased or given sacrificially so that the cause of Christ might be advanced? Or make the question more personal, how about you? Do you really believe that losing your life is the way to gain it? Downward mobility, Philippians teaches, is not simply the best of many optional paths that the Christian can take to bring God pleasure. Rather, Philippians teaches that it's the only way. Let's look at the first two verses of the text from this morning's scripture reading. We're in Philippians chapter 2, 
reading verses 1 and 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if there is any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection or mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. And here we find the first and greatest principle that guides us in the downward journey. That's, that's the example of following the example of Christ. Jesus stooped in love. He bent over backwards to concern himself with the needs of others. But his path to greatness was not a typical one. The Bible makes it clear that he first came down into the world, that he came down from the very top, that he sacrificed his divine prerogatives to become of all things a helpless human baby. Once his life on earth began, Jesus never stopped descending. Omnipotent, he cried. The owner of all things, he had no home. The king of kings became a bondservant, the source of truth. He was found guilty of blasphemy. The creator, he was spit upon by the creatures. The giver of life was crucified naked and left on a cross, bleeding and gasping for air. With his death, the descent was complete. From the pinnacle of praise in the universe to the ultimate debasement and torture of death on a cross, the innocent victim of human weakness, wickedness. The principle of these two verses is that we are to love as Christ loved, to be conduits of God's love to a broken world. In verse 3, he moves on to flesh out the thought for us more fully. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of sinful men. What does this mean? He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. What Paul is saying here is that he wasn't hanging on to that with white knuckles. I'm equal with God. I've got my place. I've got my position. I'm seated on a golden throne at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Everyone worships and adores me. He didn't consider it robbery for that to be taken away. He didn't hang on to it with white knuckles. He willingly released it, and he willingly let it go so that he could descend into this world on a mission of other-centeredness and on a mission of mercy. Here Paul sharpens his message by including this second principle, that of servanthood. Servanthood. Boy, this sermon just went from bad to worse, didn't it? Servanthood? That flies in the face of the sinful side of humanity. An idea that decreases in popularity with each passing year. When I was in seminary, uh, I, was, I was attending school. There was an African student. And uh, we spent some time together, and I was asking her about her home and her time in Africa. And I said, what does, uh, what does your father do? She says, oh, he's a civil servant. And I said, what? She says, he's a civil servant. I said, a civil servant? What, what does that mean? He, what, he, 
What's a civil servant? I had never heard the term before. Come to find out, her father was a very high-level politician who was running the country. And in my concept, civil servant, those words didn't belong together. That was an oxymoron. That was a contradiction in terms. And to think of a politician as a servant of the people rather than one who sort of bends the will of the people to serve them is the way that it often feels, often comes across in this country. And she was like, what, don't you have civil servants over here? And I said, I, I, I'm not sure that we do, <laughs> as a matter of fact. It was an interesting discussion. It, it, it kind of revealed for me the difference in concept. And she told me that in Africa, it was a thing of honor to be known as a servant. At the country and the culture that she was in, they celebrate, they still celebrated servanthood. You know, I think that we used to do that in this country. But I don't hear a lot of celebration about servanthood. I don't hear a lot of celebration about being other-centered. That's just not the popular theme of our culture this day. No, servanthood, this wages war on the universal desire for the last piece of pie, the me-first mentality that our culture has bought into. This ingrained philosophy of life which equates happiness with self-indulgence. It's a belief that power, fame, money, and thrill, those are the tools that we use to measure success and happiness. Fewer and fewer decisions are being made on the basis of values, morals, and a sense of justice. The more commonly asked questions of our time are, well, does this fulfill my needs? Does this satisfy my sexual hunger? Does this quench my thirst for poor, for more, or my need for power? The key adjective being mine. In America, our role model has switched from Mother Teresa to more of a Madonna type. The message of culture is clear. Indulge, satiate, pursue pleasures without restraint. Selfish interests seem not only to be tolerated, but actively promoted and encouraged in the culture. And this me-first mindset has led our society, I believe, to the verge of an internal collapse. When I think about escapism, perversion, perversion, AIDS, unwanted pregnancies, violence, political scandals, family breakups, we, we could see that in the context of these all being symptoms of the modern-day madness with this obsession of me and me first. The idea of serving someone used to be an honorable goal. There was no higher cause than to provide for the needs of others out of love. Yet in a culture that panders to self-expression and individualism, servant has all but been left out of our category. Have you ever noticed the occasional newscast that ends with a human interest story as if to suggest that this has now become a novelty in our culture? Well, it's in this context that Paul steps in and he changes the rules and he turns the world's standard radically on its head. And he orchestrates a head-on collision with the traditional methods of attaining greatness. His words illustrate the striking difference between divine wisdom and human understanding. This difference can also be seen in Jesus' interactions with Peter. When P Jesus said the word kingdom, Peter heard the word rule. When Jesus said stand firm, Peter heard the word fight. 
But in Jesus' dictionary, mine became yours, getting became giving, and ruler became servant. His message to Peter is one of the messages that I believe our culture needs to hear most. He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must pick up his cross and he must follow after me. And what does that mean, to pick up the cross? It means to give your life away in a voluntary way in service of others. In, in, in a response to the love that God has shown to us. Fulfillment will never come through self-gratification. Stop for a moment and think of the most selfish people that you know. Are they the happiest people that you know? They're not. They're not. I've got a, someone that I'm very close to. Very close to. Someone that's been in my life for a long, long, long time. She's beautiful. She is articulate. She is intellectual. She's bright. She is skilled. She is a self-made person economically. She lives in a wonderful house. And she is the most unhappy person that I know. And it's like there's this God-shaped hole in her heart and she has tried to stuff every one of the world's goodies into that hole to satisfy. And she has not yet figured out that only God fills a God-shaped hole. And we sit and we talk and it just breaks my heart. And I sound like a broken record because I've been on the same theme for well over 30 years now. Of This is not working. It's not working well. I think that God has a different plan for your life that would lead to a level of joy that is as yet unexperienced by you. Servanthood is the second principle of the descent to greatness. Then in verse 8, the author moves on to give us a third and final principle. Verse 8 of chapter 2, And being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even a death on a cross. And here we learn that descending into greatness involves this principle of obedience toward God. And this is a hard one for some of us who have bought into the world's plan of freedom and self-liberation. We learned long ago that freedom comes from avoiding the rules, changing the rules, even breaking the rules. In our media culture, this is interesting to me, we honor rebels. We honor rebels. Why is it that so many times that the movie, when the hero character comes in, he's got to walk a little differently than everyone else, and he's got to walk to his own drum, the beat of his own drum, and he's got to wear black, and he's got to have a cool car. And, you know, the, the, the whole character is we have to honor the rebel. We buy radar detectors. We look for loopholes. But obedience, obedience violates everything we stand we stand for and it leads we fear to sort of this blinding unthinking restrictive slavery once reserved for those who can't think for themselves or who need to be told what to do but certainly not for the autonomous free thinkers that we've become in our liberated society notice what jesus said he said if you love me you will obey my commandments and these words have a distinct ring of authority about them 
Jesus is not suggesting obedience. He's not just inviting us to obedience. He is commanding obedience. He does the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> he says, love your enemies. Reconcile broken relationships. Stand firm against the lure of <clears throat> money, power, or fame. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. When you're wronged, don't seek revenge. Try reading this sermon as though you've never read it before, as though you're reading it for the first time, and really think about what Jesus is asking. It is so countercultural. And notice that these are not requests, these are commands. And if his demanding tone seems a little harsh, it's just because he sees the truth more clearly than we do. The appeal of sin, of sidestepping God and fulfilling our own selfish desires, it's much too strong to be taken lightly. It is only through obedience, as Jesus knows, that we can tame the beast of sin that lies deep within the heart of each one of us. God's rules are not meant to be restrictive, but protective. I think of Christians as a group of people that live under the protection of God's Ten Commandments. They're like the orange cones on the sidewalk that somebody puts out when there's a hole there so you don't stumble into the hole. They mark that hole. They mark it as a hazard with an orange cone. And when you walk up on it, you, you're, oh, there's something that I shouldn't step in. There's something that can harm me or others. It's there to help us navigate the pitfalls of life. God's rules flow out of His love for us. They're not just for His sake, but for ours as well. He wants to protect us from unnecessary heartache, destruction, hurt, and violence. So in verses 1-8 through eight of Philippians 2, we find these three distinct principles discussed this morning. Number one, following Christ's example. Number two, this principle of servanthood. And number three, obedience. These are three principles that help us in the downward spiral of descending into greatness. A scriptural plan that's very different than the worldly wisdom of our modern era. But you know, one of the things that could frustrate us about this discussion this morning is, so how exactly do you define downward mobility? Maybe I'm ready to buy into the concept, but what exactly does that mean? How do I apply that to my life in the workaday world? And I wish that there were a simple formula, right? I'm a list guy. I work off of lists. I like check lists. I like to-do lists. It kind of lends toward my personality. I'd like to look at the list and just see how I'm doing and know where I'm at. A simple formula like, well, cap your salary at this figure or don't exceed this standard of living or give this percentage of your income away or hug homeless people. But it's not that simple. In fact, maybe there's a different standard for each person in the room right now. Depending on your health or wealth or economy or giftedness or intellect, or family responsibilities. Maybe that's a bit of a moving target even throughout your own experience as a person. I'm coming into a new and a fun and a good stage of life. 
I've only got four more months of tuition payments to Southern Adventist University, and then my youngest child is liberated, and I'm going to emancipate that girl. Believe me, I am. I'm going to get my credit card back. I'm going to get that title off of my car insurance. I'm going to say, sweetheart, here's how your insurance works. Here's how rent works. and all. I'm going I'm to just give her the whole deal. I'm coming into a new and a fun and a good stage of life. And my wife and I are having this interesting discussion of, well, how much, how much of that new discretionary income is going to be about us and how much of that is going to be about God's kingdom? And let's resist the lure. Instead of just woohoo, more for me, let's figure out how we can give more and give more sacrificially. One of the ways that we've talked about doing that is we've talked about her being able to work less because we can survive on less income so that she can have more time for the kingdom. We've talked about whether that should be our strategy or whether she should continue to work and then we simply give more of our, more of our resources, our economic resources. It's a fun, you know, so, so the standard is changing in my own life as I move through different seasons of life. You see, descending can't be measured by how few digits decorate the paycheck, but by what you do with the paycheck once it's deposited. The question is this, how do you manage who you are and what has been given to you? Whether that be money, authority, talent, or influence. And that question is a question that will ultimately be determined by your central purpose in life. Whose agenda do you want to advance? Is it yours or is it God's? What are you doing with your life that will outlast you? What are you doing with your life that will last forever? To illustrate this, I want to do a comparison between the two kings of Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, the Bible teaches us about two kings. The first king, he's named King Herod. Herod was a man who was obsessed with the word up. His major fear in life was the word down. Coming from a strong political family, more than a few of his ten marriages were politically motivated. He was known for his abusive use of power and force to get what he wanted. But he was also a cunning diplomat and politician. He funded the remodeling of the temple in Jerusalem to gain the support of this special interest group. Now, of course, his reasons were self-serving reasons. He was successful in his goal to attain increasing power and influence, but with them he also became increasingly secure and fearful. So as a defense, he commissioned tens of thousands of slaves to build a dozen or so emergency fortresses, all heavily armed and well-provisioned in case of a coup attempt. These would be his hideaways. In some cases, entire mountains complete with swimming pools, aqueducts, guest quarters, dining halls, recreational facilities, and enough food to last a hundred years. He also ordered the execution of any possible candidate for his office, including two of his wives and three of his sons. His third son, he had him executed and ordered that execution while Herod lay on his deathbed. 
He was a king who lived by a simple philosophy, me first. And he carried it to its logical conclusion. And for the most part, it worked pretty well. Herod ruled for more than 30 years until the time of Jesus. And to say that these two kings' paths crossed is to understate the force of Matthew chapter 2. Jesus and Herod were both moving fast, but moving in opposite directions. Herod represented the world's unvarnished perspective of power. Get it, hoard it, use it, it's all about me. Jesus brought a backward approach to the use of power. He says, I have it, but I'm going to use it for others. Both kings possessed immense power, but their use of it revealed radically different philosophies. One was bent on promotion. The other bended in devotion. One was a tyrant. The other a servant. One was consumed with self-interest. The other focused on God and anyone other than self. One manipulated, slandered, deceived, and coerced. The other healed, touched, taught, and loved. When it came to the management of power, there was only one thing that Herod and Jesus shared in common. They both believed there was nothing that bloodshed could not cure. But to get the full impact of the different paths of these two kings of Matthew 2, we must also look at their final days of life. Herod, with all of his wealth, high position, and possessions, ended in ruin. In the final year of his life, his body was infected with disease. His pain was so bad that often in the middle of the night, his screams could be heard throughout the palace. But there was more than the physical pain. He also brooded over the fact that his death would be mourned by few. And being a, a self-promotional, self-celebrating person, he wanted tears at his death. Lots of tears. So he devised one final desperate plan. He would bring together the top leaders of the land for a meeting in Jericho. And once they arrived, he would have the gates of the city locked. And before the moment of his death, he would order them all massacred. One way or another, the tears of the people would flow at Herod's death. But for political reasons, the plan backfired, and the leaders were released, and Herod died alone, and he is despised in history. Jesus, on the other hand, calmly accepted the agony of a death that he did not deserve. He was resurrected in great power and glory, and for Jesus, the end was not the end, but only the beginning, which brought a new beginning for all of humanity. And while Herod is despised by history, Jesus became the most celebrated man in all of history. Perhaps when we boil it all down, 
descending is primarily a matter of attitude. Like the difference in attitude between the two kings of Matthew 2. What is most important to me? What drives my thoughts and actions? What gives me a sense of value? If the overriding purpose of Christianity is for God's kingdom to come, then Christians must be those who roll up their sleeves to advance the kingdom of God. They give themselves away in love so that God and others might receive. They make decisions not on the basis of economic, social, or status factors, but with only this one question in mind. Does this bring God's kingdom on earth closer to reality? It becomes the beacon, the guiding principle of their lives. Descending involves emptying, to push aside one's own selfish desires and pleasures so that the good of others can be pursued. The Christian faith, when it works right, is more a matter of giving than receiving. In this, this unique position that I have as president, I get to observe this very interesting thing because I visit a lot of churches and I learn about a lot of churches and I interact with a lot of churches and a lot of church leaders. The happiest churches are not the churches who assertively demand their own rights and assertively demand that they must be paid attention to and listened to and served. The happiest churches are the churches that are serving and their focus is outward from the four walls where they gather to worship on a Sabbath morning. The Christian faith, when it works right, is more a matter of giving than receiving. I don't go to church for what I can get out of it. As a pastor, ah, oh, I had that conversation in my office so many times over the years. People slumping in my couch, I don't want to come to church, I don't get anything out of it. And I say, well, there's your problem. The problem is your attitude, it's your disposition. You missed so many opportunities to be blessed. When you come to this campus on a Sabbath morning saying, who can I serve, who can I love, who can I pay attention to, who can I seek out? Who can I impart a blessing to? Guess what? If the preacher preaches a dud, it doesn't really matter. If the special music's a little off-key, it's no big deal. If it's a little hot because it's July and our air conditioner's not doing what it's supposed to, it's, it's not a big deal. I've been blessed when I go to church. I went there and I found a blessing. Because every time I bless someone else, it cheers my heart. It encourages me. It energizes me. And I get happy that I was there and happy to be a part of the experience. Ah, but back to Philippians. In the book of Philippians, as in life, we find this curious twist. Some of you have been listening to me and you're like, oh man, this descent thing, it just keeps going round and round and round. How far down does it go? You're thinking of Jesus, the pinnacle of heaven, but he comes down to earth, born into a poor family, common laborer, dusty streets of Palestine, no respect, no education, no wealth, no health. And finally, he dies on a cross, right? Wow! 
kind of a, is there any encouragement in this message, preacher? Ah, watch this. Watch what happens in the text. Because in the book of Philippians, as in life, there is a curious twist. Following verse 8 of chapter 2, the author states this, that therefore God then exalted him to the highest place, giving himself completely without selfish ambition. He receives everything. Because he was willing to descend all those things that we looked about in verses 1 through 8, left the pinnacle of heaven, humility, because he descended, he descended into greatness. Therefore, God has exalted him into the highest place. We too, we Christians are promised joy and rewards from God when we fully commit ourselves to unconditional love for others. Downward mobility, away from self-indulgence, and toward God, mysteriously places us on an upward journey. It's like the seed that must die before it can produce new life. And unless it's willing to submit to that process of death, to be buried in the ground and to die, it will never realize that for which it was really created. It's called the law of the seed. It's a spiritual principle. And it applies to you and I. Downward mobility, away from self-indulgence, toward God, mysteriously places us on an upward journey. These downward steps may at times seem like a free fall into an abyss. But they bottom out at the pinnacle of God's grace and freedom. There is high adventure in the downward journey. In the destination is greatness in God's eyes. Our closing hymn is hymn number 330. Take my life and let it be.
And God, our prayer as we dismiss from this place is that the words of Scripture we have interacted with today would have a life-altering impact on each one of us. Lord, let us not relate to this message today as though it's programming, like we were sitting and watching TV or watching a movie. Let it not be an entertainment, a spiritual entertainment device for us. But Lord, take these words of Scripture and implant them deeply in our hearts. Let them become a guiding principle so that this mind that was in Christ would also be found in us. May that make a significant difference in the choices we make, in the thoughts we think, in the words we speak, and in the action of our hands this week. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.